Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, it was the great escape from the Louvre. Sophie's in her little two-person car, just zooming around Paris because the embassy's blocked off because, you know, surprise, they couldn't foil the DCPJ so easily. So then Sophie's like, all right, well, let's go to the train station. We're buying a couple of tickets for 70 bucks to go to Lyon. And then Langdon's like, what? What are we doing? You mean we're not catching the train after all? Because then they leave the station and he goes, oh, that's $70 I'll never see again. Oh, $70 well spent. Thanks, Soph. And now they're in the car and they're going to, you know, think about what this key means. So we start chapter 36 picking up with Bezel Fash. And he's now back at the Louvre. Remember, because he was chasing down a bar of soap that was in a dump truck. So he throws the bar of soap into the Seine and now he's back at the Louvre. And he's like, oh my God, where'd they go? (laughs) The police work in this is just so terrible. (laughs) So he's fuming and he's asking the Louvre warden, What happened? It's like, what happened is you left one person in charge of protecting the Louvre, which yet you you didn't know that the suspects were still there, but you did know the the crime scene was there. You did know the dead body with all of the satanic painting in invisible ink was there. So maybe don't just leave some guy who works for the Louvre there. And Bazoo Fash, he's thinking, just shoot the fucking painting. (laughs) You can tell in the interim, the warden was like, yeah, they got away because they held a painting hostage. It was a Da Vinci, you know? And Fash, he's like, uh, and then? He's like, shoot the fucking thing. What do I care? And then Lieutenant Colette, he's like, oh, hey boss. Crazy, right? Who who could have ever seen this coming? He says, yeah, I, I guess, I guess Agent Nouveau's gone rogue and they've taken her car. But they've gone to the train station, they've bought two tickets, and the train just left. And Fash is like, oh yeah, okay, so where'd they go? And he goes, Lyon. And he goes, well, that's probably a decoy. Why don't we just, you know, treat it as if it's not a decoy? We'll get people on at the next station, we'll sweep the train, and we'll put some plain clothes officers where her car is to see if they come back to it. And then we'll also just, you know, send people around the station, um, see if they fled on foot. And we'll question all the taxi drivers and the buses around the area. He's turned into a competent police officer all of a sudden. How about that? Although it does also make me think that maybe he should have just taken Langdon in for questioning at, at a police station, perhaps. You know, he, he set up this big elaborate show at the Louvre 
to try and coax a confession out of Langdon. Very dramatic. Really great for our purposes, you know, as, as a book and reading a book, but don't you just wish you sort of just took him to the station where, you know, there was security and you could have handcuffed him and et cetera, et cetera. If we had our time again, right? But we don't. So anyway, that's what they're going to do. And he says he's calling Interpol. And Colette is like, Interpol? You're putting this on the wire? What? And Fash is like, yeah, I know. It could be very politically embarrassing for me, but I've got to close this net and I've got to close it fast. The first hour was critical because apparently fugitives are predictable the first hour after escape. They either need travel, lodging or cash, the holy trinity. And so with Interpol, they restrict access to the travel, the lodging and the cash. By broadcasting, well, by broadcast faxing photos of Langdon and Sophie, (laughs) faxing, to all of the authorities, hotels, banks, blah, 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 they limit their options. And that's when a fugitive makes a mistake and gets caught. And Colette's like, well, just Langdon, right? You're not really going to put one of our agents, one of our own on the wire. And he's like, of course I'm flagging her. Of course I am. And I'm running her file. I'm getting in touch with everybody she's ever fucking met. I don't know what she's doing out there, but it's going to cost her one hell of a lot more than her job. And he says, Colette, get out there. Get in the field. You've got the reins, but don't make a move without talking to me. Because, you know, he's so smart and clever. And Colette's like, all right, all right, I'm onto it. So then Fash is standing at the window, looking out at the glass pyramid. (laughs) And he's thinking, oh, they slipped through my fingers. Is anyone else getting major Javert from Les Mis vibes? Just, you know, staring out at the vista of Paris ahead of him being like, oh, the criminal escaped my clutches again. But then he's also thinking, we've got this. He goes, a female cryptologist and a school teacher, they won't last until dawn. Okay, does it matter that she's a female? Like, why, why did he have to specify that? Oh, uh, a male cryptologist, they'll be fine. They can escape into Pol. <laughs> They'll have no problems being a fugitive, but a female cryptologist, ugh. <laughs> what a sexist piece of shit. So that's the end of that chapter. We go to chapter 37 and we're back with Langdon and Sophie in the taxi cab. They're going through the Bois de Boulogne, which is also known as the Garden of Earthly Delights because I guess it's a park where sex workers hang out. And I'm guessing that because, well... Dan Brown tells us, uh, the forest was dark and twisted, a purgatory for freaks and fetishists. Okay, all right, that seems a bit pointed, doesn't it? Freaks and fetishists. Stop with the kink shaming. There's too much kink shaming and sex shaming in this book. And I've never been to the Bois de Boulon, but I was just like, you know, ready to picture a couple of sex workers hanging out on a park bench seeing what's happening, you know? But he says, that there were hundreds of glistening bodies for hire. Hundreds. Earthly delights to satisfy one's deepest unspoken desires, male, female, and everything in between. And on my first read, I was like, oh, that's nice of Dan Brown to, you know, to be welcoming of the gender spectrum. He's like, you know, male, female, non-binaries. I was like, that's, that's really nice. But then I'm like, no, he's actually... Um, there's some, there's some confronting language coming up around people's sex and genders. and we'll, we'll get there. It's very outdated. And Langdon's trying to tell Sophie about the Priory of Sion, but he's getting, he's getting distracted by all of the hundreds of glistening bodies. It says Langdon was having trouble concentrating as a scattering of the park's nocturnal residents were already emerging from the shadows and flaunting their wares in the glare of the headlights. Okay. 
Are they vampires? Why is he describing them as nocturnal residents emerging from shadows? Like he's really laying on thick that he thinks they're sinister. So we've got two topless teenage girls shooting smoldering gazes into the taxi and and beyond them, a well-oiled black man in a G-string turned and flexed his buttocks. Okay, good for him. Is it chilly out? I hope it's not. Ah, something about that sits wrong with me as well. But then it says, beside him, a gorgeous blonde woman lifted her miniskirt to reveal that she was not, in fact, a woman. I'm feeling uncomfortable around this. And because Langdon, he's such a fuddy-duddy, he thinks, heaven help me. Heaven help me. That gorgeous woman's not a woman. Well, she might be a woman. She could be a woman with a penis. I don't want to get into it. Um, Okay, so then Sophie's like, hey, Langdon, eyes up here, bud. Tell me the story about the Prior of Scion. Stop stop looking at that black man's butt crack. He might be well-oiled and have a G-string and and fabulous buttocks that he's flexing, but please focus up here, okay? Focus on me, focus on me. And Langdon's like, what, what? And he's like, okay, um, okay, all right, let me get this straight. He's like, okay, Prior of Scion, okay, let's do it. He says they were founded in Jerusalem in 1099 by a French king named, okay, do we need all of this? <laughs> Fuck, we did. It's a secret society of people hiding a secret to do with the Holy Grail. Like, there's the executive summary, but here we are going on about who set them. Okay, some 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 French king called God Godfroy de Bouillon. Okay, fantastic. And Sophie, she's just nodding. She's like, yes, of course, Godfroy de Bouillon. Every school in France learns about Godfroy de Bouillon. He is the most famous king in France. Godfroy de Bouillon. Please continue. And so allegedly, King Godfroy was the possessor of a powerful secret, a secret that had been in his family since the time of Christ. And then fearing that his secret might be lost when he died, he founded a secret brotherhood. How many times are we going to say the word secret? The Prior of Sion and charged them with protecting his secret by quietly passing it on from generation to generation. Like, does anyone else think it's a bit ironic that in order to protect a secret, they're just telling all these people. So when they're in Jerusalem, the Priory learned of a stash of hidden documents that were buried beneath the ruins of Herod's temple, which had been built atop the earlier ruins of Solomon's temple. Okay. All right, sure. They believed that these documents corroborated Godfrey's powerful secret, and they were so explosive in nature that the church would stop at nothing to get them. The Priory vowed that no matter how long it took, these documents must be recovered from the rubble beneath the temple and protected forever so the truth would never die. Okay, again, if you're that worried about the truth dying, just tell people the secret and then the truth is out there, then you've got nothing left to protect. Just out with it. But they hadn't seen these documents. They were just aware of the documents somehow. I guess there's a rumor going around Jerusalem that there's these documents that are going to corroborate some guy's secret. How, how do they know that if that guy's keeping that secret? What's the go between? from someone who had knowledge of these documents hidden under the rubble of a ruin, which was built on top of another ruin. And then this Godfly guy who's got a secret, but he hasn't told anyone the secret, except for the secret society that he established to tell that secret too. There's a missing link here. So in order to get the documents from underneath the rubble, the Priory created a military arm. Why do they, why do they need a military to dig up some rubble? What? Uh, uh, anyway, so this military arm, They're a group of nine knights called the Order of the Poor Knights of Christ in the Temple of Solomon. 
most commonly known as the Knights Templar. And yeah, I can see why they rebranded. Like, if I was one of those nine guys, I wouldn't want to be called the Order of the Poor Knights. Like, no, thank you. And like, how wordy. Of the Christ of the Temple of the Solomons, blah, 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 blah. Knights Templar, much better. And Sophie's like, what? Pourquoi? Knights Templar, but I've heard of them. Ah, all throughout this book, there's a lot of what? But I've heard of that. That can't be. And it's like, oh, fuck me. Get on board, Soph. And of course, Langdon, he's lectured people before. So he's like, I expected her hesitancy around this. He's like, I've lectured enough people to know what the reaction's like when I say the Knights Templar. And yet he never adjusts his lecture accordingly, but whatever. And Sophie's like, hold on a tick. You're saying the Knights Templar were founded by the Priory of Sion to retrieve a collection of secret documents? I thought the Templars were created to protect the Holy Land. Well, you thought wrong, babe. And he goes, yeah, you thought wrong, babe. Um, The idea of protection of pilgrims was the guise under which they began their mission. Their true goal was to retrieve the documents. Okay, we get it. They wanted to... Retrieve documents from underneath the ruins of a temple. Got it. And so then Sophie's like, all right, well, did they get the fucking documents? And Langdon's like, nobody knows for sure. But he's grinning as he says it. He's like, oh, oh, Sophie, you've just asked a most brilliant question. Nobody knows for sure. <gasps> but one, oh, get this. One thing on which all academics agree. <laughs> okay. All academics agree that the knights discovered something down there in those ruins. Okay, all right. No academics can agree on anything. We just lived through COVID and there were scientific experts. There were academics who were out there saying, we should try and maybe restrict the spread of COVID by wearing a mask. And then there were other experts being like, fuck that. (laughs) And there were academics who were like, nah, masks do shit all. So if we can't even agree on mask wearing, how are we going to get all of these academics to agree that the Knights Templar found some something underneath the ruins of a temple which was built on top of the ruins of another temple? It'd be the first thing all academics have ever agreed on in the whole entire world, but okay. So he's saying they discovered something that made them wealthy and powerful beyond anyone's wildest imagination. Okay, yeah, all, all academics agree. So then Langdon's going into the backstory of the Knights Templar, what they were getting up to in the Second Crusade. (sighs) How they told some King Baldwin II guy that they were there to protect Christian pilgrims on the roadways. And they said to King Baldwin, they said, hey, Baldy, we need a place to stay so we can help the poor. Just, you know what, do you want want to put us up somewhere? Maybe um, in that stables, which are under the ruins of that temple near your palace? And Baldy was like, okay, sure. (laughs) Weird request, but yeah. Why don't you go hang out at the stables, which are right near those ruins of the temple? None of my business, sure. And then Langdon says, the odd choice of lodging had been anything but random. Like, it's been widely established to us that there were documents hidden under the rubble of the ruins of the temple of the palace of of the fucking King Herod's temple. Like, okay, we... (sighs) Of course it wasn't random. But just in case you haven't figured it out yet, he then goes on to add, the knights believed the documents the priory sought were buried deep under the ruins. (gasps) Yes, yes. But then it takes them almost a decade to excavate the ruins. So these nine knights are just living in the stables, just being like, la-di-di, la-di-da. 
I don't know what they're doing. How, how did it take nine years, 10 years to figure it out? Were they like digging with a spoon? Were they that guy from the Shawshank Redemption just chipping away for 30 years behind a poster? What took them so long? So they're going, they're just digging around under the stables. I don't know where the horses are in all of this, but they're digging away. And then nine years later, they find what they're looking for. So then they just take that treasure and they go to Europe where their influence seemed to solidify overnight. Like, how did they turn documents confirming a secret into wealth and prosperity? The only way I can imagine doing that is by sharing the secret, and yet then it would not be a secret, which they were secretly sworn to protect. So that's not tracking for me, but apparently they've gone rags to riches. Now everyone in Europe wants to, you know, yuck it up with them. And apparently there were rumours that maybe they were blackmailing the Vatican or something, but then Pope Innocent II, he was like, no, nah, they're fine. They're a law unto themselves. They are an autonomous army, independent of all interference from kings. And so now they've got carte blanche from the Vatican, and then they expand. Robert's just saying this all off the cuff, by the way, as well. He's just, you know, got all this on lock. He's like, oh, I've got a lecture prepared for this, Sophie. I'm going to ignore that man in the G-string and just tell you this history lesson. Without flubbing. No flubs. So the Knights Templars start buying estates in over a dozen countries, and then they start lending money to bankrupt royals and charging interest, thereby establishing modern banking and broadening their wealth and influence still further. How? Not so sure. So then by the 1300s, they'd amassed so much power, then the new Pope, he was like, hang on a tick, maybe I've got to take them down a peg. And that's Pope Clement V, just in case you were wondering. And so then he works with France's King Philippe the Fourth, Okay. And they come up with a plan to quash the Templars and seize their treasure. So Pope Clement, he sends out an orders all across Europe to his soldiers. And he sends them all a letter. And he says, don't open this letter until October 13th of 1307. He's like, guys, I mean it. And so then at dawn on the 13th, everyone opens up their letter and the letter's saying, let's all kill the Knights Templar. They're heretics, they're guilty of devil worship, homosexuality, defiling the cross, sodomy, and other blasphemous behavior. And so now all these soldiers in unison who just opened up their letter in unison, I mean, all right, sure. Um, they're all like, ah, oh, we got to get the Knights Templar because they're sodomites. And you know, there's worse things to be, but okay. But it worked. It went off with clockwork precision. Oh, sure. So then countless knights were captured, tortured, and burned at the stake. I thought they were a secret society. <laughs> they, were, they were set up as a secret society, but everyone knew where to find them. And then Dan Brown tells us that echoes of the tragedy still resonated in modern culture. To this day, Friday the 13th was considered unlucky. Oh, that's where that's from? Okay, sure. I thought it was from a movie franchise. I thought it had something to do with Jason Voorhees, but I guess I'm wrong. And Sophie's like, what? The Knights Templar were obliterated, but I thought fraternities of Templars still exist today. And he's like, they do. Okay, sure. All right. So, th- so they weren't wiped out. Okay. So he says, despite Clement's false charges and best efforts to eradicate them, the Knights had allies. So some escaped, blah, blah, fucking blah. And Pope Clement, he wanted the treasure trove of documents. This, how does he know about the documents? I thought, I thought the documents were secret. But uh, Pope Clement found out about the documents, tried to kill them all, but a few got away so we couldn't get the documents. 
And so now the Templars entrusted the documents to the prior of Sion, whose veil of secrecy had kept them safely out of range of the Vatican's onslaught. They can't be that secret if Robert fucking Langdon is sitting in a taxi at the Bois de Ballon and he's talking about it. I'm sorry. Some loose lips sunk some ships along the way because I'm hearing about the documents. In the year of our Lord 2022, I'm hearing about the documents. So someone let up and spread some info about the documents, but apparently it's a secret. And Dan Brown's even saying that the Priory smuggled the documents from Paris one night on a Templar ship in La Rochelle. He seems to know the whole bloody escape route of these documents. But then Sophie says, well, where'd the documents go? And he's like, oh, that's a mystery. No one knows. Did they just fall off the face of the planet? Langdon says there's constant speculation about the documents, but current theories, you know, put them at somewhere in the UK. Langdon says for a thousand years, legends of this secret have been passed on. (laughs) The entire collection of documents, its power and the secret it reveals have become known by a single name, Sangrial. Hundreds of books have been written about it and few mysteries have caused as much interest among historians as the Sangrial. And she goes, Sangrial? Does the word have anything to do with the French word sang or Spanish sangre, meaning blood? Like, okay, she just turned into Duolingo all of a sudden. That was the most unnatural line of dialogue I've ever heard. Ah, sangreal. Would you like me to use it in a sentence? Would you like to know the derivative? And Langdon's nodding. He's like, you got it, Soph. Blood was the backbone of the sangreal. He says the legend is complicated, but the important thing to remember is that the priory guards the proof, the documents, and it purportedly... Is it just not ridiculous to you guys as well? I love when I stop mid-sentence. Like, But is it not just ridiculous that... All this hubbub is just over a few documents. Documents. Like, what are we looking for? A file of facts? Documents from the 10 hundreds? Would that paper still be preserved to this day? Would it have even been on paper? Are we looking for a tablet? What are we looking for here? When you say documents, what the fuck are you talking about? Because I don't know if they were having documents in 1099. I don't know if they had a Staples or an office works or a stationery shop. Are we looking for a ring binder? Are we looking for a manila folder? What are these documents? Did anyone transcribe the documents at any point? Are we updating them as we, as we evolve in modern technologies? Did it progress to a floppy disk? Is it now on a USB? Like, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Hopefully we'll find out what the documents are. It's just, it's just crazy. So apparently the documents, uh, they exist, but the Priory of Sion are waiting for the right moment in history to reveal the truth. Now! Maybe just fucking do it now. What are you waiting for? And Sophie says, what truth, what secret could possibly be that powerful? And Langdon takes a deep breath and gazed out at the underbelly of Paris leering in the shadows. Like, oh my God, it's just a couple of sex workers. Calm down. It's not an underbelly. He says, Sophie, the word sangreal is an ancient word. It has evolved over the years into another term, a more modern name. And she's, she speaks French. She's already said sung means blood. And she's like, not figured it out. She's like, do, 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 do. Don't know what that means. And he goes, when I tell you it's modern name, Sophie, you're going to freak out. You'll realize you know a lot about it. In fact, everyone on earth has heard the story of the sung real. Well, stop calling it sung real. Say it. Say what name it's known under. Why are you talking in code, Robert? She says, no, I've never heard of any sung real. And he goes, yes, you have. All right, way to assume knowledge. He goes, yes, you have. You're just used to hearing it called by the name Holy Grail. And that's the end of that chapter. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Holy grail, holy shit. And Sophie, she's not having the reaction that I think Robert wanted. We start chapter 38 and Sophie scrutinized Langdon in the back of the taxi and she's thinking, he's joking. <laughs> he's joking, the holy grail, that's not so. And Langdon's nodding, he's like, uh-huh, holy grail, yeah. Good plot twist, right? He says, holy grail is the literal meaning of sang real. The phrase derives from the French sang which evolved to sangrial and was eventually split into two words, San Grial, Holy Grail. And then it says, Sophie was surprised she had not spotted the linguistic ties immediately. Yeah, I'm surprised too, because you're a cryptologist. You were raised to crack codes. You've done six anagrams this very night. And she, a native French speaker, can't get San Grial. She can't figure that out. She can't figure that out. San Grial, she can't get it. She says, I thought the Holy Grail was a cup, dummy. You said that the Sangreal was a collection of documents. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. The documents are only half of the Holy Grail treasure. What? Where, where is he? Has he seen it? Where are you getting this information from, Robert? He says, they are buried with the Grail. The documents are buried with the Grail itself and reveal its true meaning. The documents... <sighs> Stop saying fucking documents. The documents gave the Knights Templar so much power because the page, okay, pages, it's pages. They revealed the true nature of the grail. Pages? When were pages invented? Okay, so I did Google when paper was invented and you know, that is pointing to sometime after Christ in China, but I did forget about papyrus. You know what, papyrus slipped my mind. (laughs) So I'm assuming it's on papyrus, perhaps. Perhaps it's on papyrus or it's on paper, parchment. It just depends when the secret was written down 
Was it done in Christ's time or was it done a thousand years later when King Baldwin did something or other or King, King What's-His-Face? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. It's a quandary. Anyway, they're documents. And there's a cup as well, just for good measure. And Sophie's thinking, she's like, what, what true nature of the grail? What the hell does that mean? The Holy Grail, she had thought, was the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper and the cup that caught his blood at the crucifixion. And she says, um, the Holy Grail is the cup of Christ. How much simpler could it mean? <laughs> and he says, Sophie, Sophie, according to the Priory of Sion, the Holy Grail is not a cup at all. Okay. Are you talking to them? Does the Priory have a website where they're laying this out for you? They claim the Grail legend, that of a chalice, is actually an ingeniously conceived allegory. Oh God, it's all a metaphor. Oh, fuck me dead. Oh, fuck me dead. It's a metaphor after all. Okay. The chalice is a metaphor for something else, something far more powerful, something that fits perfectly with everything your grandfather has been trying to tell us tonight, including all his symbologic. Symbologic? Symbologic? What? Symbolic? Symbologic? Is that, is that a word? Symbology? Yeah. Symbological? Yeah, sure. Symbologic. Symbologic. Oh, not one I'm familiar with. That one really tripped me up. Okay, so, all right. Let's just repeat that. Uh, yeah, this metaphor fits in with everything your grandfather's been trying to tell us, including all his symbologic. Symbologic? Symbologic. Sim- I, I just can't, I can't get past that. Symbologic references to the sacred feminine. Oh, of course it is. Everything comes back to the sacred feminine. Okay. Okay. And so Sophie, she's like, I don't think so, mate. She says, if the Holy Grail is not a cup, what is it? And Langdon's like, oh, here we go. Here we go. She wants me to explain a metaphor to her. All right, here we go. And to prepare himself for bringing up the answer that he doesn't want to say, he has a little mini flashback to when he handed his editor a manuscript, because you remember he's writing a book about the sacred feminine. So he must've come up with some wild theory that he put it in his manuscript and he gave it to his editor. And his editor was like, what? You can't be serious. This manuscript claims what? And we have to do this in a flashback for some reason. Okay, so we're doing it. And so this editor, prominent New York editor, Jonas Forkman, tugged nervously at his goatee. Forkman no doubt had heard some wild book ideas in his illustrious career, but this one seemed to have left the man flabbergasted. So, oh, wow, we're, we're building up this wild theory. Okay, what is it? Not just yet. <laughs> we're not hearing it yet. He goes, Robert, Forkman finally said, don't get me wrong. I love your work. We've had a good run. But if I publish this, I'll have people picketing outside my office for months. It will kill your reputation. Where could you possibly find enough credible evidence to support a theory like this? Just tell us. Just tell us the theory. Why are we building this up buttercup for so long? So then Langdon, being a little show pony, he slides across a piece of paper and it's a bibliography listing over 50 titles, books by well-known historians and some new ones, some of them academic bestsellers. And they all agree on this theory. And Forkman's looking at this list and he goes, oh, oh. But I know some of these authors, they're real historians, which is a bit of a dig to his client, who is allegedly an historian as well. (laughs) But these are real ones. As Forkman read down the list, he looked like a man who had just discovered the earth was really flat. 
And Langdon says, as you can see, Jonas, this is not only my theory, it has been around for a long time. Tell us the fucking theory then. Like the purpose of a flashback is to present the information to us. Even though it's unnecessary because he's about to tell Sophie anyway, but we're just flashing back for no fucking purpose. But now that we're in it, get to the point. But he's just edging us with the big reveal. And then he finally says, no book has yet explored the legend of the Holy Grail from a symbologic angle. Symbologic. Symbologic. The evidence I have is staggeringly persuasive. Okay, sure. And then Forkman, he's still staring at the list. Oh, oh, we're not going to get there. Okay. So then he goes, my God, my God. One of these books was written by Sir Lee Teabing, a British royal historian. Like, uh, this dialogue kills me because Langdon knows that this Teabing character is a British royal historian because he's on Langdon's bibliography. So I don't know why Forkman is explaining to Robert that Sir Lee Teabing is a British royal historian. Robert's got the context. Does Forkman know he's in a book? Does he know he's in a flashback, a narrative flashback? Maybe he does. Anyway, so Teabing is a character we'll see in a few chapters, but Teabing has spent much of his life studying the Holy Grail. I've met with him. He was actually a big part of my inspiration. He's a believer, Jonas, along with all of the others on that list. Okay, so maybe the purpose of this flashback is to introduce Teabing to us rather than introduce the big reveal because, because we've not gotten the reveal yet. And then Falkman says, you're telling me all of these historians actually believe dot, dot, dot. Of course, he's unable to say the words because it's so shocking. He can't even say it. (sighs) Just tell us. And so then Langdon, he's grinning and he goes, yeah, the Holy Grail is arguably the most sought after treasure in human history. Get to it. The Grail has spawned legends, wars and lifelong quests. Okay, get to it. Does it make sense that it's merely a cup? If so, other relics should generate similar interest. The crown of thorns, the cross, blah, blah, blah. But they don't. Throughout history, the Holy Grail has been the most special. And Langdon's still grinning. He's like, doesn't make sense, does it? Well, now you know why. No, we don't know because you haven't told us. And then Falkman says, but with all these books written about it, why isn't this theory more widely known? And Langdon says, these books can't possibly compete with centuries of established history, especially when that history is endorsed by the ultimate bestseller of all time. And Forkman goes, don't tell me Harry Potter is actually about the Holy Grail. And, <laughs> and Langdon says, I was referring to the Bible. And you know what? That's kind of actually kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, as far as jokes go, this book is pretty few and far between. And we, and we got a joke. Dan Brown, sense of humor. Who knew? And so I feel like we're just about to get the theory revealed to us. It's coming, it's coming. But no, Sophie claws us back to the present because she's shouting at the taxi driver saying, put it down, put it down, because the taxi driver has grabbed for his like radio mouthpiece thingy. So I guess, you know, someone at Interpol said, hey, taxi drivers, anyone seen this female cryptologist and a school teacher? But because Sophie's shouting, we don't get the big reveal. Oh, fuck me dead. Also... Why was he remembering this whole big scene in his head when he was telling this story to Sophie? Just spit it out. Was Sophie sitting there in silence until she yelled at the driver? She was probably so bored. It probably happens to her a fair bit that she's just in conversation with Robert and he'll just be off with the fairies and she'll be like, oh, fuck me dead. Oh, he's having another flashback. She's probably thinking, does he know that I can't see the flashbacks? We're not in a pensive, like, 
she must be so frustrated by this guy. But anyway, okay, so the taxi driver, he drops his radio and he's like, oh, oh, what, what the hell's going on? And then she's telling the taxi driver to stop, to pull over. And so he does. And that's when Langdon listened to the voice on the taxi company's dispatch saying, okay, um, saying something about Agent Nouveau, something about American Robert Langdon. He doesn't speak French, but he knows their names. And he's like, oh, they found us already. Rot roll. So then Sophie's yelling at the taxi driver to get out of the car. Does she have a gun? Oh, she does have a gun. Okay. Cause I'm like, why is the taxi driver listening? <laughs> Just keep driving. But no, she pulled out a gun. I think it's the Louvre security guard's gun. Anyway, so she's, she's still got the gun. So she's pointing it at him. Taxi driver gets out of the taxi. So now she's aiming it at the window, just still got him at gunpoint. And she says, Robert, take the wheel. You're driving. And Langdon goes, oh, I'm not about to argue with a woman wielding a gun. So he gets out of the car and then jumps back in behind the wheel. And Sophie says, Robert, I trust you've seen enough of our magic forest. How are they still in the forest? That must be a big fucking forest because we just got a whole history textbook of information on this drive through the forest with all the sex workers. (laughs) But here we are. Okay, so then Robert's like, yeah, I have had enough, plenty. And so she's like, drive us out of here. And he's like, Sophie, I don't know about that, Sophie. And she's like, go, go. And he's looking at the car, because he doesn't drive stick, which I can't fault him for because I can't either, but he, he can't drive stick. And he's like, rot row. And outside, several hookers were walking over to see what was going on. Several hookers. That's a direct quote. Uh, okay. Um, so then one of them, she's about to call someone on a cell phone. And Sophie's like, you gotta go, Robert. And Robert, he really cooked it. So I, as I said, I don't drive a manual, but in an emergency situation, I think I could figure it out. All right. Like, you know, you put it into drive, you do something with the clutch. Um, I don't know. You put your foot on the handbrake. No, I don't know. I don't know what you do actually, but I'd figure it out. But Robert, not so much. <laughs> Smartest man in Harvard, not so much. <laughs> the taxi's leaping forward and then it's fishtailing wildly. And then the gathering crowd of hookers dive for cover. And Sophie's like, what the fuck are you doing? She's just being thrown around like it's a roller coaster. And he goes, I tried to warn you. I drive an automatic! Exclamation mark, end of chapter. And see, Dan Brown got confident with that Harry Potter joke. He was like, look at me, I'm funny, I'm funny. And he's like, this will be a nice little button for this chapter, a little bit of a laugh line, but it's, it's not that funny. I drive an automatic. <laughs> like, okay, Sophie's, you know, almost killed a taxi driver. I, 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 I think we need perspective here. It's like, you know, I love Marvel movies. Like I enjoy them a lot, but they'll be in a battle, this big serious battle for the fate of the universe. And like some alien will get blood on their costume and they'll be like, oh man, I knew I shouldn't have just gotten this dry cleaned. And they'll be making little whippy little quips. It's like, it's not the time nor the place. You're in a battle for your life. And I like how the enemies, the horde of alien invaders are just like, you know, oh, we'll just let you have that laugh line and then we'll attack. They just hold back for just long enough for a little quip. And then they're like, okay, Captain America, did you get the laugh line? Okay, now we're going to attack. Anyway, so that's what this feels like. So that's the end of that chapter. We go to chapter 39. Oh, and we're back with Silas. Remember him? The hulking albino. That's a direct quote. So now he's back at that little, that church accommodation place that he'll stay on the night at. Okay, great. And he's, he's in a world of turmoil. He's like, oh no. He's like, I was deceived. Everything's lost. I've been tricked. 
And he's thinking like, whoopsie daisy, shouldn't have killed all five of the Priory people who, who knew the secret. Should have just killed one and then went to the church to see if they were telling the truth or not. Ah, oh, but now I've killed all of them before I went and double checked. So that's my bad. Silas has made a whoopsie and he's feeling pretty sheepish right now, as he should. I mean, as if you wouldn't just double check. He had to go and get confirmation from all of them. The Grandmaster and the Four Center Show, he had to go and kill all of them before just once checking if their story held up. That's on you, Silas. I mean, I hate to say it, that's on you, bud. He's like, oh, and not only have I killed them, but I've also killed the nun. Oh, that poor nun. And then he's like, no, wait a minute. She was working against God. She scorned the work of Opus Dei. So he's like, oh, well, I guess he got over that pretty quick. He's like, oh, it's a crime of impulse. But the woman's death complicated matters greatly because Bishop Arangarosa, he's the one that made a few phone calls trying to get Silas into San Solpice. And so now when the nun turns up dead, he's going to be in some hot water. So Silas has like really cooked it. And Silas had, (laughs) this is ridiculous. Silas had attempted to replace the broken tiles in the floor, but the damage was too obvious. Someone would know that he'd been there. Yeah, there's a dead nun upstairs. (laughs) Like, like, okay, you bashed her head in. Like, she didn't have a cardiac event. Methinks you will be suspected. And so Silas is like, oh, well, my plan was always to then go and hide at Opus Dei's headquarters in New York, the recently opened <laughs> headquarters in New York, and just like never leave, like he'd be happy there. But he's like, oh, but this is more difficult for Bishop Arangorosa. He can't do that. I've really fucked it. <sighs> so then we have a flashback. <sighs> of course we do. So then he's flashing back to when Arangorosa gave him purpose in that little church in Spain. And Arangarosa had told him, my friend, you were born an albino. All right. Stating the obvious there. Do not let others shame you for this. Do you not understand how special this makes you? Were you not aware that Noah himself was an albino? Mm, I think he's telling porkies here. And Silas is like, what? Noah of the Ark? I've never heard about that. And Arangarosa says, yes, Noah of the Ark. He was an albino like you. He had skin white like an angel. Okay, he might, he might've just been pale. He says, consider this, Noah saved all of life on the planet. So you are also destined for great things. Okay, well, one doesn't equate the other. And, and that just did the trick. <laughs> that did the trick somehow. He's like, oh, you know what? If Noah of the Ark, this mythical person that never existed, if, if he was an albino and Bishop Arangarosa knows that somehow, even though the... <laughs> I don't know how he knows that. He's like, if he was an albino, then you know what? I'm fine being an albino. So that was in the flashback. In the flashback, he's like, you know what? I'm white. I'm beautiful like an angel. You know what? It's not that bad. I love that that's the takeaway of the Noah of the Ark story. You know, it's not about how God sent down a flood to kill everyone. It's like, oh, you know what? He was an albino. Anyway, so then we're back in the present. And he's feeling differently. He's thinking about what his dad used to say, calling him a ghost. And so then he gets on the floor, he prays for forgiveness, and I I assume he flogs himself again because he's reaching for the discipline, which I think is the whip or the the thing that he's got on his thigh. Uh, Who really cares? And so that's the end of that chapter. Didn't know Noah was an albino. Here we are learning things on the Da Vinci Code. And we also learned about Pope Clement and King Charles de Gaulle or whatever the fuck his name was. Anyway, so what did you guys think of this history lesson? 
Did you remember that papyrus existed? Because I didn't. <laughs> I did not. Um, okay, well, let me know your thoughts. Leave a review. Head over to patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks if you want to check out the Maze Runner content. That book's, it's spiced up a little bit. You know what? I wasn't enjoying it because it was so fucking shitty and poorly written. But at least there's a little bit of action now. The, the sun has disappeared. Yeah, they just wake up one day and the sun's completely gone. And, and then Thomas is like, mm, something must be going on. There must be some sort of coincidence with this girl in my head who just telepathically said that it's the end of times. And I'm like, yeah, you don't think? Anyway, a lot's going on over on the Maze Runner. So if you're interested in that, $3 a month, patreon.com slash breaking down bad books. Check it out. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.